Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists. Ruby's live remote receptionists and proprietary technology are your solution to delivering excellent customer service experiences by answering live calls in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, addressing common questions, or making outbound calls for you. Most importantly, they sound like they're sitting in your office. To learn more, visit callruby.com or better yet, call us at 855 855- 255 Ruby. My guest today is Mike Draper. Mike owns a clothing store or a number of them in the Des Moines, Iowa area. He was born at a hospital six blocks from the business, and there's actually a funeral home between the business and the hospital. Mike likes to say he'll spend his entire life on a couple block stretch of Des Moines. He started by selling t-shirts as a student at the University of Pennsylvania, and well, let's let Mike tell the rest of the story. Welcome, Mike. Hello. Greetings from beautiful downtown Des Moines, Iowa. Well, it's great to have you on the show, and I, I love learning about your story, uh, selling t-shirts. Uh, tell, tell me how you started the business. Yeah, so I grew up in a small town right outside Des Moines, although I was born six blocks from the store. So geographically, I have not come very far in my life. And I, my main goal growing up 18 years in a small town in Iowa was to leave Iowa which I did upon graduating. Leaving <laughs> Iowa is actually easier than anticipated. There are several clearly marked exits. And I went to study history at the University of Pennsylvania because it was more than a day's drive from Iowa, so my parents couldn't just like pop in and check on me like if I were in school in Chicago. And I think when I went to study at the University of Pennsylvania and when my parents sent me to study at the University of Pennsylvania, Neither of us anticipated that upon graduation, I would be selling T-shirts literally on the street. Did they help? Uh, did they hope for something something different out of that uh, education? I, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if anybody really like shoots for that. I mean, there's no reason to go to a four-year university to sell T-shirts on the street. So um, you don't normally meet like a kid who's growing up here and is like, oh, I'm going to go out east for school, and if I play my cards right, maybe I'll sell T-shirts on the street. <laughs> it's like, wait, how do you get from A to B? And so I, I kind of got from A to B by getting rejected for what I wanted to do, or at least what I thought I wanted to do upon graduation. I thought I was going to get a a master's degree in international relations. It was kind of a big ruse to go and live with my girlfriend who was over in the UK, who I had met on a study abroad thing. I always wonder how many of people's major um, life decisions revolve around where their significant other is living. Oh, <laughs> I was yeah. going to go and you know commit to studying something for a year based off of where like my girlfriend was, which seems a little silly. Um, but then I got rejected for that fellowship, and so I had to kind of like what a friend of mine calls reassess my entire life. I was like, well, I've got now the next 65 years of my life free. And if you're at a school like Penn, it's you know one step to the next step to the next step. Nobody ever really – it seemed like at the time it's pretty pre-corporate, and so nobody makes one step or leaves something without knowing exactly what they're going to do for the next step. So – 
people are having their jobs, schools, everything lined up senior year before they leave. And so I kind of felt this odd man out of like, oh my God, I'm like the only one at this school who has no idea what I'm going to be doing in the next couple of months once I graduate. And a friend suggested that we start selling t-shirts on campus. And that was kind of where the entire thing started. (laughs) Since I had my entire future wide open and everything was on the table, I thought, yeah, why don't we just do that? Well, you know, I think uh, that came out of maybe getting that rejection letter and then, you know, trying to figure out what you need to do. But the the fact is, I think even at that age, most of us, if we're honest, don't really know what we want to do anyway. Uh, And so uh, how did how did he come up with that? Was that just a way to get to make some money or was there actually at that point the idea that this might turn into a business? It was, I mean, really neither of us were interested in doing it as like a full career. Um, he was a junior, I was a senior, we were just in the same fraternity. It was It was really just that when I was a freshman, I bought a shirt that said, not Penn State, um, which is if you're at the University of Pennsylvania, you know, the only reason you're there is because it's a great school and you didn't get into Yale. And so <laughs> when people are like, oh, Penn State, you're like, God, the only reason I go here is to get adulation from total strangers on how smart I am not to be mixed up with a Big Ten school. And um, so this store was selling in my freshman year. I bought one. Almost everybody I knew bought one because it was this joke that really resonated. Um, That store went out of business my sophomore year. And so Mm -hmm. my senior year, every upperclassman had a not Penn State t-shirt. And so whenever you would wear it around campus, all the underclassmen would just say, oh, where did you get that? You're like, oh, is the store, where is it? It's out of business. Oh, if somebody had those, I would buy it. And so my friend said, why don't we just take one of those not Penn State t-shirts to a screen printer, make a hundred of them and stand on campus and sell them. And so that's exactly what we did. We each put in $300, got a hundred t-shirts made, um, stood outside our fraternity on the middle of campus and sold them. And the number one thing we heard from people was other seniors who were like, oh, my God, my buddies and I had this exact same idea. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, the first design wasn't ours. The idea wasn't really ours. And we didn't have exclusive rights to this idea. We were just the two guys that put the money together and walked like the three blocks to the screen printer and started selling them. And as bizarre as it sounds, once I started selling them, the thing that kind of clicked for me was oh my God, this is something creative that I could actually monetize. Leading up to that point, I had done you know, art as a hobby. I worked at an alternative weekly in high school doing movie and music reviews. I played in a bunch of bands, entered a film festival or two, wrote all the time. But I had pretty pre, I had extremely professional parents. They weren't like professional at parenting. They were like professional in their job life. Um, Parenting was just something they did amateur-wise on the side. <laughs> and so there was always this, yeah, but how do you make money doing that? Yeah, but how do you make money doing that? Which is a good question to ask. <laughs> you know, money's not the most important thing in the world, but it sure does come in handy sometimes. And selling T-shirts, I thought, oh, this is an easy product. It's easy to make. It's easy to distribute in that you can stand on the street and sell it. And there is nothing weird about that. I mean, you can shoot t-shirts out of a cannon at people and they are happy that you're doing it. There are not a lot of products in the clothing world or in anything that fit that bill. And so as soon as that light bulb went off, I just said, yeah, I'm going to keep doing this. And so when I graduated, I would have other t-shirts printed and then I would travel around out east and just stand on busy intersections or other college campuses and sell t-shirts out of a bag. You know, 
You remind me of uh, something that happens every time I go to a hockey game, and my my family and I are big hockey fans, and we go to a lot of hockey games here in Dallas, and they have the T-shirt gun. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you don't know how many of these T-shirts, and it's Dallas Stars, by the way, so it's this green T-shirt with their logo, nothing special about the T-shirt. We must have 30 of them. Like we don't need any more T-shirts, but when that when they yeah. raise that gun to you know our, we're waving our hands like we just won. What is it about that T-shirt that you know yeah. we're and you know, it's 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 always like it's, you said something that people want. It's hard to do with steak knives. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little more difficult. Well, you know, you took this idea, you grew this business to the point where now you have. Four sites, you're looking to expand geographically, you're generating over $4 million in revenue, have 70 employees. How did, how did you possibly go from those 100 shirts to growing this successful business? Yeah, I think step one is that it's been roughly 14 years. <laughs> yeah. And so when I used to interview bands working at City View in Des Moines, you would you know, meet some of these guys and they had their demo album out, but they'd been practicing for two years. And then maybe they get signed by a major label and they're called like this overnight success. But you interviewed them three years before as a young band that had been working for two years. And so it's one of these like five year overnight success stories. The underlying bedrock of the last few years has just been essentially constant work. And in the beginning, it was like lots and lots of work for almost no money. <laughs> so when I was selling t-shirts out east, I kind of discovered like two things that are pretty important. One, selling stuff outside in the winter sucks. Um, standing in like 15 degree weather in Union Square, New York, trying to sell t-shirts to people is when you start thinking, maybe I should take this operation indoors. <laughs> and then two, your average person is like not reliable. So I was working with other screen printers. Stuff was either not done on time, not done properly. And it got so frustrating that I was just like, I don't even know how to screen print, but I can probably do it better than a lot of the idiots who were running screen printing shops. Mm. And so I decided I should open a store. I should start printing myself. And a friend of mine from Des Moines who was in New York said, oh, you know what you should do? You should just move back to Des Moines and open a little shop on like the east side. They're trying to like redo a neighborhood there. And it's kind of like getting you know, advice at the right place at the right time. I, in that day, was like, yeah, I am going to do exactly that. And so I moved back uh, to Des Moines, moved in with my parents. My mom was nice enough to have not taken down any of my Rage Against the Machine posters from high school. Mm. So it was kind of like a smooth transition into my old room. (laughs) I think deep deep down, she must have known that I know that I was going to be back one day. And I, a friend of mine from high school, his dad had a screen printing shop. He taught me the basics of screen printing. I bought the equipment with money I made selling shirts out east, started printing in my parents' basement, and then opened up my first store later that year. But I was the only employee for the first two years. So for the first two years, I you know, opened the store, closed the store, rang up every sale, designed every shirt, printed every shirt, unclogged the toilet after people used it and clogged it. Um, cleaning a public bathroom tells you a lot about society. So yeah. anybody that's like, oh, I can't believe people treat each other that way, that that type of person has not cleaned a bathroom enough. Because if you've cleaned a public bathroom, you know, yeah, there's a lot of people out there who go, not my problem. Yeah, yeah. And from there, you know, 2005 onward was, you know, just kind of slow and steady growth. 2007, I remembered I hired my first employee 
another one later that year, another person the next year. There's been no point where we've had, you know, a viral hit. In Des Moines, you're kind of out in the hinterlands. <laughs> and so you're not going to get plugged into some sort of like fast track to success. Nobody's going to swoop in and just shower us with money. And so I still own 100% of the company. We've never had outside investment. There's no board. It is just kind of leverage and grow, leverage and grow, leverage and grow. And that, that kind of answer is always disappointing to tell people whenever you say like, oh, how, how'd you do it? And it's like, just show up and work every day, I guess, and do that for several thousand days consecutively. And I remember the first time I got that same advice was I was selling shirts and I was wholesaling them to other stores and there was this catalog in Minneapolis. And they asked me for pricing for one of the shirts and I gave it to him and he said, oh, is there a discount if we order a thousand? And it just blew my mind. I'm like, mm. you're going to you're gonna sell a thousand of one design. And so I just had to ask him, like, how do you sell a thousand of one shirt? And he was like, we've been around since 1978. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, oh, man, I thought you were going to give me like a secret, like a shortcut. But that that just sounds like work. Yeah. You know that uh, what you're saying, though, is uh, rings so true. And I, I remember in my core business, which was a healthcare call center business, the same thing. We bootstrapped it in an you know, eight by 10 room and 24 hours a day. And we slept overnight in a cot and two years till we could hire our first employee. And uh, uh, people undervalue today, I think, this whole idea of bootstrapping. Uh, we're always, you know, looking to grow fast, looking to bring in outside capital. Uh, and I think I, I've got to believe as well, if I was walking into one of your stores and just listening to your personality, that I'd be able to feel that and feel a culture that uh, reflects that personality because you've kept control over it. And again, not that you wouldn't have been open to do it a different way. But the fact is, there's no secrets about doing this. And and growth is generally very slow. You just put your head down, you work hard, and uh, go to work the next day and, and do it again. And, uh, and uh, if you do it the right way, and you and you treat people well, uh, then your business is going to grow. It's it's actually uh, pretty simple. So uh, I want to take you back to some of the, your early influences and you've talked a little bit about your folks and, you know, you, I can just picture them very buttoned up and send their kid to Penn and, uh, he's <laughs> gonna, he's gonna be a big deal. And, you know, he ends up, uh, uh, selling t-shirts, but, uh, but what was it like growing up? What were kind of the early influences? And now as a, as a, a leader managing lots of people and, uh, you didn't just hire one, you hired a lot of people. Um, that becoming a leader is something that really generally starts early on in our life. So what were some of those early influences from your folks? Yeah. So, um, my dad is an attorney and then my mom is a mechanical engineer <clears throat> and my dad is actually, he's a, like a litigator. So he's not even the type of attorney that sets up companies. <laughs> and so when I was first starting the store, I'm like, could you set up my company? And he's like, I don't really do that. I get to refer to you one of my partners. And you're like, yeah, your firm sounds expensive though. <clears throat> and so a buddy of mine from high school who was an attorney set up our first company and the high school I went to is actually K through 12 all in one building. So the town, is, and it's a public school, which people out east, it was like hard for them to map their minds around. It's like, so it's a public school? And you're like, no, it was, it were there, it's a private school. I'm like, no, it was public. Why were there so few people? I'm like, well, we wanted more, but the town only had 900 people. <laughs> so it's kindergarten with the same kind of 27 of the 32 that I graduated with have been together since kindergarten. So wow. you're in this kind of tiny building. You don't want to 
I mean, it's not like a utopia, but the cool thing about a little school is that it's less divided than, you know, a big school, they say, sometimes gets divided into like jocks and burnouts, where there's so few kids that every guy in the fall class play was also in football. (laughs) So you did football in the afternoon and then you did theater in the evening. So you can kind of get this really well-balanced You can work on the art side of things from improv, but then you can also get, you know, the structure and practice side of sports. But then you're in such a little environment that, you know, your behavior is, you know, constantly, I don't, everybody knows you so well that when I was leaving the, one of the big upsides of going to Penn is you're like, wow, it'll be awesome being somewhere where nobody knows who I am or cares. But the underlying side of it is that you're kind of constantly aware of how stuff reflects on, you know, you even like the football coach, when they would talk about practice, you know, or when summer was coming up and they'd say, you know, never do anything that reflects poorly on you, your family or the town. And so there was this odd connection that you were like representing the whole community you were from and your actions. And if people were caught drinking, it's like, oh, this looks bad for the town. Hmm. And it's nice to kind of have that embedded that you're working for something bigger, because I think that's translated to the company and that what we see is the store doing as kind of lifting up, you know, Des Moines and Iowa and the Midwest in general. And that one of the nicest things we can hear when people come into the store is like, oh man, this is, this is not what I expected from Des Moines, or this really reflects well upon the city is the greatest compliment. Cause we feel like we're doing like a service to the community we're from. And so part of me think that thinks that is like deeply embedded somewhere in there. The second part of it is my, you know, skimpy resume as small as it is actually a lot of the stuff on there was phenomenal for running a company i was never somebody who was going out and getting like really awesome internships in the summer like other people at penn i taught sailing up in michigan so i would Mm -hmm. live with my grandparents and i would teach kids who were aged like 7 to 13 sailing and so you're managing like another group of instructors, you're managing little kids, you're managing parents, and it kind of teaches you all levels of how to organize an operation for three different sets of people with three different goals. Um, the younger instructors have one set of goals, the kids have a set of goals, the parents have a set of goals. And putting all those pieces together slowly teaches you the basics of management like no management class could ever teach you i've never Mm. taken a management class and so i'm like i don't want to slander management classes since i have no idea what's in management but i hear the a class like management 101 and i think to myself what a joke um (laughs) you may as well take pe you know i don't think you're going to learn management from you know a a set of like basics you can only really learn management from uh, working with people and it's got to be a wide range of people like here at the store we employ everybody from floor staff to screen printers designers you know carpenters welders seamstresses and so it's a wide variety of people from a wide variety of backgrounds all put together and how do you get that group to move as a cohesive unit yeah did uh you have any other jobs uh kind of growing up that had an impact as well? Uh, Working at the Alternative Weekly in the summer was pretty important for like two reasons. One, it it shows you that there are creative outlets you can do that make money, but it was summer of 2000. And so it was kind of at the tail end of, you know, print media. It was like before, I don't think we even had a website at the Alternative Weekly back then. Um, 
but so you kind of see all the like writers and they're struggling and they feel underpaid and underappreciated but then you're also interviewing a lot of bands and the main difference between the bands that made it while I was there and the bands that didn't make it was not necessarily music but it was work ethic like the bands that made it just worked their ass off took management seriously took practice seriously took scheduling seriously and that was when you look at something like rock and roll from the outside, you think of it as totally different from you know running a small healthcare startup or a store. But underlying all of that, there has to be a just rock solid, come in every day work ethic. And if it's not from the band members, it's got to be from a manager of the band. So mm. there could be this like rock and roll lifestyle of the lead singer, but the guitarist may be just um, you know kind of all hands on deck working 24 seven or there's a manager during it. I never bumped into anybody, you know, even in the art world that was, you know, successful without something in their organization or connected to them, um, with this like underlying work ethic. So that was kind of a lesson. And that, again, there's no shortcut, even if you look at a field and think, Oh, that field's totally different from my field. You know, there's nothing that would apply from there for my life. This, underlying work ethic is cuts across everything I had ever experienced. And those were kind of my two only real jobs, I guess that and being president of the fraternity was also helpful just from an organizational standpoint. But my resume is like so short. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's just like like those two things. And then I started selling t-shirts. So, yeah. Um, what about, um, uh, maybe an unexpected learning from an unexpected source along the way? Um, Man, I, I'm not sure I've ever had anything that was totally unexpected. Well, I guess the one, the one thing that really reinforced it is that you grow up in like high school and the goal, it seems like, is to go to college. And then you're in college and you, you're amongst all these people who are obviously also in college and you're all kind of on the same track. And you start judging everybody by you know, what's on their resume, so what school they went to, what they studied. And over four years at Penn, you slowly feel yourself slipping into this, judging everybody based off of, you know, paperwork of where they went to undergrad, where they go to grad school, what firms they work at, and everything has to have name recognition. Um, David Brooks in Bobo's in Paradise commented on it when he talks about the New York Times uh, marriage section that it used to be, um, which big families were getting married. And now he's like, these two hulking resumes come together in holy matrimony. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's a Stanford marries Harvard. It's a Yale marries Princeton. And so you intrinsically think that, you know, where you have been is an indicator of where you're going. And when I first started screen printing, it becomes really clear to you that you don't necessarily need somebody that looks good on paper. You just need somebody who shows up and works hard. And so there was a guy who was about my age and he printed at like a shop on the East side. And he said, Oh, do you ever want me to come in and help you print? I said, yeah, sure. And he was like a great screen printer, worked fast, cool. You know, we had a lot in common. He would come in occasionally and print. One day a buddy of mine from high school was in the store and like the printer was in the store. And I said, Oh, this is a friend of mine from high school. And I, I remembered I had never asked, like, this guy where he went to high school, which is kind of the main question in Des Moines, because everybody's from Des Moines. So it's like, where'd you go to high school? Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, oh, I never graduated from high school. <laughs> like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, I, <laughs> I got into meth. I had a bad family, you know, dropped out. But a couple of guys I was doing meth with got thrown in jail. I cleaned up, started screen printing. And it's like, oh, well, you do a great job, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was this, you know, you 
suddenly realize that a lot of what you've done, you know, past is prologue. It gets thrown out the window versus what you're going to do now. And you stop judging people based off of, you know, resume or where they went or where they've been or who their family is. It is all about if you can show up, work hard and want to work here, you will have a job for life. And those are the three things that no matter what your skill set is, we will find something for you to do here if you kind of meet these levels of dependability. Dependability trumps everything, trumps background, you know, even talent across the board. And so this has been like a real lesson and that what they teach you in college about the importance of like background and resume is often just to kind of like keep top colleges in business. <laughs> you're, you're, I mean, you're going to a corporation to get a degree and they kind of need to sell this. Ooh, this is the Oracle. You're going to make all these connections here. And those first years of running the store after two years, one year even of running a small company, I felt so much smarter <laughs> than I did after, you know, 18 years of school. I know. Quick, uh, quick education. Uh, you know, I, my best friends got two kids, uh, one that just graduated from Penn and one that's going to start at Penn and well, sounds, yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, but but much more traditional, like you talked about the the uh, older one just got accepted to some MD PhD program. You know, paid for by the government, just incredible <laughs> stuff. You know, and uh, and so I'm thinking about you just going completely opposite direction. What were your parents supportive, and you know, did they finally come to terms with okay, he's not going to follow in our footsteps? Yeah, we. So my mom, as I mentioned, is a mechanical engineer. She went to Michigan and then MIT. And so when she moved to Iowa, she was one of only three female mechanical engineers in all of Iowa and had moved from the auto industry. So kind of pioneering. My dad is an attorney. He grew up out east, actually, and went to Yale and then Harvard Law School. <laughs> My older brother went to Cal Berkeley for engineering that I was going to like Penn. And sometimes when I was at Penn, people were like, oh, it must be wild. You're from this little town in Iowa. And uh, are your parents like blown away that you're a school like this? And I said, well, my you know, mom went to Michigan and MIT for engineering. My dad went to Yale and Harvard Law School. And they were like, oh, my God, so you're like stupider than your parents. <laughs> it's like, so you're, you're like a disappointment almost. You're at a, you're at a safety school. And <clears throat> to a certain extent, it was nice that not all of my parents' hopes and dreams were riding on me. And they were both fairly satisfied in what they did and what we did. And so my dad's almost the reason I'm in this. And that when I was like floundering at the end of school and you're like grasping at straws, I'm like, all right, well, everything's gone wrong. I'll go to law school. <laughs> and I asked my dad, I was like, well, should I go to law school? And he said, well, you should probably just take a year off, like stop going to school for a little while. Cause you should only go to law school if you want to be a lawyer. Um, which is sometimes I think people are going to grad school is just kind of a filler. Like, well, I can't think of anything else to do. Um, it's not socially acceptable to be unemployed, but it is socially acceptable to be an unemployed student. <laughs> uh -huh. And so I'll just keep going as long as somebody else is going to pay for it. And so that was, I think, great advice because it snaps you out of this, you know, inertia of going from one step to the another. So my parents were never really like disappointed in it. The harder sell was the girl who I was going to go over and live with while I was getting a um, graduate degree. She and I were still together. And so it was instead of me saying, hey, <clears throat> instead of 
me moving over to like London or Scotland, what if, and I'm just spitballing here, <laughs> you move to Des Moines, Iowa, where I'm going to open up a t-shirt shop? And it's like, uh, maybe. I'm like, well, do, do you know anything about Iowa? And she's like, no. I'm like, great. <laughs> that is the best place to start from. <laughs> the view of the mountains is unforgettable um, in that you will never see it. And so she actually moved to Des Moines just before I was starting the store and like enrolled in nursing school. And we're now married. I mean, getting married is almost an afterthought. If you're committing to moving from London to Des Moines for somebody, it's like there's a solid foundation there. Yeah, yeah. And I think in the back of some people have asked her like, well, what was it like moving over here and making this big life decision? And she said, well, in the back of my mind, I always kind of figured Mike would do the store for a little while. It would fail. And then we'd go do something else. <laughs> like you get a real job somewhere. And maybe that's what my parents were thinking too. They just never have like fessed up to me if they thought I would do this, and it would be a fun project and I'd get it out of my system. And by this point in my life, I wouldn't be wearing flip flops. Oh man. What it's, uh, incredible and uh you guys have kids oh yeah we have we have too many we have four kids so they oh, are nine seven four and eight months old oh my god are you done yeah oh man we overshot a little bit uh, <laughs> it's like my grandpa always said four kids is too many kids <laughs> it was either i mean we had three and I could tell that we, like the kids were kind of like, can we get a dog? And my wife was like, maybe we should get a dog. I'm like, you know what? Let's just have another kid and not get a dog. Because in terms of, if you look at the children from a business standpoint, we already had this like structure in place for raising children, like doctors, schools, all that stuff. A dog was going to be like taken on a whole, it's like mission creep. <laughs> we'd be into a whole new thing. We'd have to find a vet for the dog and daycare for the dog. And so... I went with four children with the agreement that we will not get a dog until somebody leaves the house. So it's like a one in one out policy. Yeah, you trade trade it in. And we're going to yeah. do it by weight. So if you want a big dog, one of the older kids has got to get out. <laughs> so you got to find somewhere else to live, buddy, if you want a German Shepherd. I, I love it. So um, what's it like today running the company? What's How are you involved day to day? How have you taken these philosophies that you've learned and um, embedded them in the day-to-day activities of the company? Um, So in terms of running the company, I think to start with, some people will ask like the question of the other managers, like, so is, is the owner like around? (laughs) It's like, yeah, he's, he's there every day. I like sit right next to him. I, I didn't run the company as a means to do something else with my time. I mean, I have no hobbies per se outside of doing the company. I enjoy doing it. So I'm here, you know, Monday through Friday, I would be here probably more often if my wife wasn't like, you have to come home and help raise the children that we made. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I, you know, I like doing it, the creative side of it. It is more fun now than it was in the beginning. I mean, there's pros and cons to it. In the beginning, it's tough because you have so little money that every decision is kind of like a life or death decision. And every task is kind of, did I do it? If I didn't, then it didn't get done. Mm -hmm. And so there's sometimes a benefit to being small, but there's also a benefit to being bigger. You know, now there's, you know, staff to handle some of those tasks that I used to have to do. There's access to capital. You can take on bigger projects. And so creatively, I kind of find the company more interesting now in a sense than it was in the beginning. And we always say that we're growing, not for the sake of growing. It's, you know, not to this, like, I'm not trying to get rich doing this just because 
all I could have in the future is more of what I currently have. I've already kind of ticked all the main boxes in terms of, you know, like house, vacations, cars. Um, I can only drive one car at a time. I don't really need two. And so we're growing not just for sales or bottom line. We're growing because as we expand our, um, you know, distribution group of from four stores to eight stores, that just means we can take on a couple bigger projects you know, like books or podcast type stuff that it's hard to monetize on a little level. You need access to a bigger pool of people. And as like a vertically integrated company, almost all of our sales are direct either store or website. So we're not pushing wholesale to other stores. So we kind of have to grow our own footprint to take on more interesting projects. And so the, the creativity is still the thing that kind of drives the whole company. And I, I mean, I honestly find this field of where kind of media meets retail and messaging and building an environment to sell things in that people find fun and what people buy and what people like online is kind of endlessly fascinating. I mean, it is, you could think about it, um, 24 hours a day for years and still not really unlock all the like secrets of it. You know, what's really interesting is that, uh, I recently jumped into my first, direct-to-consumer business, uh, which is probably not the smartest decision, but jumped into, <laughs> into the restaurant business. And uh, so I'm learning about that. And I've always been a huge uh, proponent of this idea of customer service and and uh, how that resonates. And, and so just to be able to be in the hospitality industry and uh, go from business to business to business to consumer is really fun and exciting. Uh, how and, and I can see just listening to you, but also looking at the website and, and I can imagine in the stores too, um, what you're doing as most of us would say is nothing special in terms of the product or service that you're providing or the, 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 uh, what you're selling in the store. Um, so how have you been able to create the story that people are really buying versus the product? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that people kind of forget about and it's, it's important to take things like, you know, price point, size of store, product, all that stuff is you should, you should definitely think about, you know, what are you selling? How much does it cost? Quality of it. But people often leave out the psychology of why people buy places. A lot of people like things that just kind of make them feel good, whether it's a product or even the environment. And so with the store, you have to think about everything, you know, how the employees address, you know, the customer, what they look like, where the store is, you know, size of displays, distance of displays, what people see when they walk in, what music is playing. Um, in general, it is, and it's, it's tricky because a certain even the customer won't be able to articulate to you uh, why they necessarily like one place or another place. Restaurants are a great example of, you know, why do some restaurants with a similar menu do so much better than other restaurants with a similar menu? And it's it's not always just the food of it. It is just the aura around it. Mm-hmm. And so, <clears throat> you know, part of, I think, the our success in terms of like the product is that there's like an authenticity to the store that is apparent because it's like actual authenticity. <laughs> People are always like, Oh, how do you make a product like more authentic? And it, it's kind of like, well, I think it's either authentic or it's not authentic. Um, <clears throat> but it's kind of like, you know, diet Coke, either it's, 
it, you're not going to like fake it in some way. It's either zero calories or it's like water, but people are like, it's zero calories. So you're like, something is in it. It's brown, <laughs> so, but it says zero calories on it. And so there's, there's no way to fake authenticity first and foremost. And so it kind of has to start from the top down and that if I, you know, love doing it and take it seriously. And I think that will slowly permeate down, but it's more than just a love of it. You really do have to take care of like the nuts and bolts of, you know, responding to emails, responding to social media requests, like chit chatting with people casually. It's stuff that may seem like a waste of time, just like killing time, talking to people at the register Efficiency-wise, you could kind of say, oh, God, we're losing money. We're not ringing up people fast enough. But aura-wise, you want everybody to leave with a feeling of, oh, I like being in that place. Because then there's going to be this, in the back of their mind, a drive to come here because being in here is like inherently satisfying. And so I take the product side of it like extremely serious, you know, the type A part of me you're almost able to like suck the fun out of it and that you will overthink something to death, <laughs> be upset about the way things are tagged or the, if the print is too far high, too high up on a shirt, too low down. But we also take like the psychology of it. If you want it to be a nice place to come to, you know, uh, the nuts and bolts really are important. I, I, when I first, uh, approached this, uh, restaurant tour about, uh, uh, wanting to maybe do something together. I remember going to the website and going to the hello at address and, uh, <laughs> no response. And then when I, when I finally got to talking to him by going into the restaurant and we, uh, uh, we got together for breakfast and then I called him the next day to follow up. I get a message, you know, we're sorry. The mailbox is full. Oh, that and, drives me insane. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, you know, the first thing I did is I said, you know, dude, uh, we're going to have to do things differently. You know, the first thing you got to do is you got to clean out those messages and, and, uh, you know, h- how you respond and how quickly you respond to people just makes such a difference. And, uh, and you can't be inaccessible, right? So, yeah, if you, uh, I mean, yeah. if you email contact at Raygun site, uh, from our website, that goes to the four people who sit up in the main section of the store with me. And so we, you know, point of contact with any person is a way to sell the company or the product. And so you, any contact with a customer is good contact. And that is, you know, first and foremost in my mind and, Sometimes people kind of let the digital stuff slide by. But in the real world, if somebody came up to the counter and said, oh, hi, do you guys do custom printing? And the employee responded with absolute silence. That would be bizarre. (laughs) It's kind of like, oh, did you hear me? Did you not understand the question? Am I not in line? And so there's this feeling of, you know, not being understood or not being taken seriously. And that translates to, you know, online, you know, don't start a Twitter account if you're not going to respond to people. Don't have a Facebook page if you're not going to respond to people. If you're not going to respond to your email address, don't have an email address. Yeah. Because having people ask a question and get no response does the exact opposite of what you want them to do. It is vastly detrimental. And so we take you know, the interacting with people extremely seriously. And my biggest pet peeve, you used to think when people wouldn't respond to email, oh, I'm just a nobody, they're probably busy. And people will often say, 
oh, you responded to my email, even though you're like so busy. And you're like, yeah, but part of my job is responding to email. Right. It's, I take this seriously. We once had CNN email us and say, oh, we'd like to do a piece on your store. Could we come in sometime? And so that email got passed to me by the guy next to me. And then I responded and they said, oh my God, it's amazing to get a response from you. And, and you're like, it is like people get an email from CNN that says, I'd like to do a story on your store and broadcast it nationally. And there's companies out there that are like, yeah, I'm busy though. <laughs> I'm I'll get, I'll get to that one tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. My mailbox is full. Yeah. CNN can wait. Uh, it's funny cause I get those all the time still where they'll say, gosh, I, I can't believe how fast you responded and um, I know how busy you are. And I'm thinking, I'm not that busy. Uh, I'm just waiting for your email to come in so I can respond <laughs> to it. Um, so, uh, Mike, with all the, the good stuff that's happened, I, the, there's got to be challenges along the way. Give me a sense of maybe one humbling leadership lesson that you've learned even in the last few years. Ooh, the... The biggest downside to like running a company, anybody who says, I'm going to run a company for the money, I'm like, oh, I'm going to stop you right there. You should be running a company because you want to run a company. Because the money thing, uh, you learn when you're older. And the money thing is that you know, cash, cash flow takes up probably 20% of my brain space. It'll be the thing that I do not miss at all about running the company is this constant how much cash we have, how much cash is coming in, how much is cash is going out, how much cash we need for something else. It is, you know, kind of a draining, you have to think about it, but it does get tiring. And the fluctuations of money and sales get tiring. Every time we like nearly run out of money and just the like stress of the whole thing is so overwhelming because it's, it's different from the stress of working for someone where your stress is essentially, um, put on to whoever your immediate boss is. Like that person is kind of the one person that controls, you know, schedule. And, and so your, your kind of stress is manifested in one person. If you're running a company and just sales are down, your stress is almost from everywhere. It's this mysterious, you know, why are sales down? Especially when it's not a couple of core customers we sell to, it's, you know, the general public. And so there's this mysterious quality of why, why are sales down? Are they going to be down for this long? You know, what can I do if they stay down? Are there things we can cut? Are there things we could add? And so, you know, running the company doesn't remove stress from your life. It just gives you a different kind of stress. And there is no way to spin, you know, financial worry into an upside. <laughs> so like later you're like, Oh, but actually, you know, it was tough at the time, but it turned out it was like kind of fun. It's like, Oh no, that whole month was miserable because sales were down and we thought expenses were spiraling. And there is no way to look back on it and say, yeah, but actually it was kind of a fun time. So that's, that's the side of the company that I think if I'm ever not running a company, I will not miss at all is the you know, the money side of it and the cash side of it, which you obviously have to think about. There's no way around it, but that's kind of the downside that you hope that creative day to day upsides kind of outweigh. Yeah. An unnecessary evil. So, uh, for all those people out there, um, you know, younger people that might be feeling a lot of pressure, uh, from their schoolmates, their parents and, and all of that to go that more professional route and, uh, uh, and then go to call, you know, a great college and get, you know, a, 
become a doctor, lawyer, or other kind of different kind of professional, uh, what would you say to them? What kind of advice would you give them as they're just starting out? I think the best advice I ever got was actually from a song that came out in 1999 to the year before I was graduating from high school. And it was Boz Lerman took a Chicago Tribune editorial called Everybody's Free to Wear Sunscreen and put it to music. And it became this like surprise hit. And there's a line in it that says, you know, sometimes you're ahead, sometimes you're behind, but the race is long. And in the end, it's only with yourself. Mm. And there is no way that other people's adulation of you or your position in life or your resume is ever going to make up for how you feel about yourself or your position in life. And once I stopped going to school and started doing this, I realized how much I did not like going to school. (laughs) It was this thing that I was doing because everybody else was doing it, but I really didn't get all that much enjoyment from it. And I kind of thought, well, I guess this is what life is. You do something you don't really like, but if it pays you, I guess, all right, sure. And doing something that I really liked never seemed like an option. And I, I run a hundred percent, I own a hundred percent of the company, not necessarily because I want to, but because way back in 2005, if you're graduating with a history degree, no retail experience, no major financial backing, um, no connections in the industry, and you want to move to Des Moines, Iowa and open a screen printing shop that you've never screen printed before. And your wheelhouse is going to be ultra positive slogans about Des Moines, um, (laughs) investors were not really lined up around the block to give me money. I mean, even buddies of mine from high school who didn't go to college were like, I don't know, man, I've got a pretty good thing going at the grocery store. (laughs) Cause I'm like, just come and work with me. I'll give you like 30% of the company. They're like, I better pass. It just seems, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it'll go well for you. But so in the beginning, when I would tell people, Oh, I went to Penn, people would be like, Oh, really? I'm like, well, I studied history. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> I was like a walking example of why you don't want to study liberal arts. It's like, look at this. You see what you history degree, you end up selling t-shirts on the street, buddy, go for business. Whereas now when I tell people I went to Penn, they're like, ah, Wharton. And it's almost this indication uh. of, oh, you must've gone to business school if you're so successful. And it is a funny of how I'm viewed by other people has changed over time in that in the beginning it was like, Oh, like, I guess he's doing what he loves. And, you know, now it's, Oh, you know, he must've been prepped for success in some way. And so it is difficult to kind of do what you enjoy doing because there will be a moment where you're out, you know, by yourself and you feel like you're totally isolated from other people. But, you know, again, if you want to do it, there's no way around that. The easier thing for me was that moving back to Des Moines made it a little bit simpler and that you're kind of removed from, you know, the East Coast liberal arts like bubble that I was in. So I kind of left that segment of friends and kind of came back to where I grew up. And it was a lot easier to be kind of on the outside when you feel like you're just yeah. hanging out, hanging out in the prairie with a bunch of people who are waiting to go to Austin, Portland or Brooklyn. <laughs> and so that side of it made a little simpler, but you know, also now that I've got, you know, kids, I think about it too, of that the most important thing my parents ever did for me was not necessarily steering me in one direction or the other saying, Oh, your worth is determined by this. There was always that focus on, you know, your actions and how they reflect on your family or the community that always kind of took 
you know, social standing was more than just what you made or your career. And so I, I try to be cognizant of that when I had, like, as I raise my kids thinking, I don't want to put too much pressure on them of, you know, what they do or where they're going is important as is it is. You kind of just want them to be like happy doing what they're doing. I mean, I think all parents deep down think, well, I just want my kids to be happy. I want them to have a good time and to be happy when they're at home and happy when they're working. But you do get wrapped up in this. If they're not, you know, successful, then they're not happy. (laughs) And it's like holding two opposite things in their mind at the same time. But the parents know that their personal success, you know, money wise or standing wise hasn't always translated to happiness, but it's something that's, you know, measurable. And so even if they know it's not the answer to everything, they might project it as the answer to their kids. And I always try to avoid that. Well, I also, uh, I know that what we set out to do or what our parents set out for us to do doesn't always happen. In most cases, doesn't happen. And we pivot uh, along the way. And I, I was a history major, too, in college. And uh, why was I a history major? Because I got a D in chemistry. And so my dream of being a doctor <laughs> was done. And uh, and I had some AP credits in history. Said, oh, I'll be ahead of the game by being a history major. I had no real interest in it. And then uh, at the end, I'm going, what do I do now? Well, my dad was a lawyer too. And uh, so I went to law school and I practiced law with my dad, but that only lasted a year and a half. And I went out and started a business with my brothers, right? But, you know, the same sort of thing, I think of just the uh, the parents that were uh, put, you know, kind of drove us in a certain direction, but didn't put pressure. My dad was always like, oh, you want to be a lawyer? Great. You know, that, that that's fine. And, uh, or you want to do this? That's fine too. And when his kids went into business together, he was, you know, the happiest person in the world. He didn't care about, you know, anything except we were together and doing something. And, um, and so I think the, if, if as parents, we can remove a little bit of the pressure, uh, and realize everybody turns out. Okay. doesn't matter where you go to school. My, my older brother is so much smarter than me, never went to college. And, you know, we were able to grow this business successfully and, and it just more often than not happens that way. Um, so, uh, I just love how you've taken these lessons early on and that you're, you're not only, um, reflecting those upon your, your four children, but, um, all those people that work with you today and will work with you going forward. And, uh, really appreciate your contribution to, to the way business is done because I think it's pretty special. Um, what a great story, Mike. I, I, uh, I love what I've heard. I, I want to just end with these kind of five quick hit questions like the association oh, yeah. game. So, you know, just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, name a leader that you look up to Ooh, living or dead. Doesn't matter. It may sound hackneyed, but George Washington. <laughs> okay, that's a good one. How about how to, a, a book that influenced your leadership style? Book that influenced leadership style. I think my most applicable book to human nature and leadership is Lord of the Flies. <laughs> um, how about your all-time favorite movie? All-time favorite movie has got to be probably a tie between The Big Lebowski and Fargo. Oh. I love both of those, I, but but Fargo is definitely at the top of my list. Um, how about I don't know you, you know, how much time you get to do it with the kids, but do you have a favorite TV series you like to binge watch? Ooh, um, my wife and I just finished like The Handmaid's Tale, although that came out once a week, so you couldn't really like binge watch it. But um, yeah, The Handmaid's Tale is a thing we've watched most recently. I love Silicon Valley, um, the like Mike ah, Judge yeah. series. 
Although my wife hates it, so I have to watch it like when she's not around. Yeah, I I can really find a show that my wife and I like to watch together. Um, and lastly, what about something about you that many people don't know? Wow, something about me that many people don't know. I don't know. I was gonna say that I don't have a smartphone, but that that's so remarkable that the Des Moines Register actually wrote an article about it. <laughs> oh. So that's so that's turned into something that's small about me that a lot of people um, do know. I guess I don't have any social media personally, which is something that people always find surprising, and I guess wouldn't know because how would you know that I didn't have it if it doesn't exist? That's right. And I think that's only because I get enough social media exposure at the store to kind of. Uh, make me want to distance myself from the rest of humanity and my personal life. So I lead like a fairly Spartan existence outside of the store for how kind of like cutting edge, I guess you could say the store is and how on top of social media, you know, personally, I find that stuff like entertaining, but it's not necessarily important in my day to day life. Well, but the fact is that uh, there really is no difference between business and personal. Uh, it is the same. So you are on social media because the store is you or the business is you. Yeah. Um, so you, you are out there in one way or the other. But uh, great stuff. I want to reflect on a few of the things I that I took away, Mike, um, in our conversation, that um, things that I learned. Um, and I think kind of back to when you, you sold those first uh, hundred uh, t-shirts and, and, and at some point you did think, Oh, wow, this is something maybe we could monetize. Um, and I think that what people need to understand is that there's just nothing that replaces this hard work and slow growth. And, and, uh, even if you have choices to grow more quickly, uh, you know, you've been at this for a long time and it's a, it's a wonderful story, but it's no, it's all about, uh, hard work. Uh, and you make choices along the way, and 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 most often it's those choices because they circumstances things come to us. You said, you know, I'm stood outside in the cold in Union Square, New York, and selling T-shirts, and kind of this sucks. I, at some point, I needed some walls and a roof because I need to, you know, warm up. Um, you realize that working with other people was really hard, right? Oh yeah you had to take control and realize that in those early days, you have to do everything yourself. Um, and you did everything yourself. You cleaned the public bathroom, anything that you needed to do. And that's the way it works. There's just no way around that. Um, uh, I love how you learned at school to always do what reflects well on you. And I think that is something I try to teach my kids. And especially in this day and age, like don't ever post something, don't ever write an email, don't ever, that you'll ever be ashamed of um, because it will come back and and bite you. And and I think you learned that early on, you know, your early leadership lessons of, of teaching, uh, teaching in the uh, sailing, you know, when you lived with your grandparents and you were able to teach the teachers and, and the kids and the parents. And uh, this all led up to uh, what you learned and how you learned to be a manager. You didn't learn to do it by a book or going to class. You learned by working with people. Um, and uh, uh, I, what I love of what you said is that, you know, you don't need someone that looks good on paper. You just need somebody that shows up. And uh, that is just so true. I mean, if we think about the stuff that kind of bugs us and um, the people's natural tendencies and this idea about dependability trumping everything. And and that's so true in every business, whether you're in retail or not. Maybe it's even more uh, you know prevalent even in retail. Um, but 
Uh, I think that's such a, a big thing. And, and the idea that, yeah, that maybe nothing initially sexy about, you know, screen printing T-shirts and everything, but what you're selling is authenticity. And you can't, there's no such thing as fake authenticity. You either are or you're not. Um, the, any contact with a customer is a good contact. And people, uh, if they would only realize that if you could just respond quickly, just be on top of it, um, and uh, that is going to be 50% of the game beyond the product or service that you provide. Um, you, you know, you talked about the challenges of the financial part of the business, which everybody has to deal with. But the fact that people should run a company because they want to run a company. Yes, we all want to make more money. We all want to be successful. But there's something about what it means to be creative, to run and grow a company, to impact people's lives that goes way, way beyond the money. And that becomes kind of a necessary evil. Uh, and, and this lastly, um, you know, the advice that you gave to, uh, from the, the song in, uh, that you heard that the race is long and it's only with yourself. And if people could just realize that, that, uh, if you could just turn off all the pressure and everything that you're hearing from the outside and uh, have some confidence and feel good about what you're doing, uh, even when you seek out mentors and advice from other people, ultimately you're going to come back to your gut and what matters is how you feel about what you're doing. Uh, and nothing replaces uh, good, good hard work. Uh, so, so much to, to learn from your journey, Mike. I, I really appreciate you uh, being on the podcast, how can people uh, learn about the products and services? What's the website? <clears throat> oh, um, raygunsite.com is the website. Raygun.com was like a little outside of our budget. <laughs> so, but if you just Google Raygun, we will we will pop up near the top. All right. Well, everybody, go on there and check out their great uh, products and and buy some stuff. And and uh, Mike, I want to thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. Until next time.